Welcome to New Realities. I'm Alan Steinfeld. Tonight is a roundtable discussion with psychic Marla Lombard and intellectual, spiritual intellectual, I would say, with Darren Stevenson. Hope you enjoy the show. What you wrote about quantum physics, I think you wrote or someone else, really not having any answers the way we define it. It's only a label. So maybe that's not exactly what was said, but and this understanding that, you know, it's all based on consciousness is meaningless, basically, because we don't know how to use consciousness. We're just substituting consciousness for God, and there's no access to the actual tools that we are capable of having. And to say quantum physics is con- is based on consciousness, it's it's merely just labeling things. This is what this is the mistake that Jung said, made when he said, oh yeah, it's synchronicity. He explained absolutely nothing. He just labeled it. So how, we want to get into the mechanics of consciousness, synchronicity, time travel, all these things without just putting a little tag on it. Do you know what I mean, Darren? I do. So let me say back to you something like what you said. Okay. <clears throat> And I'm not sure that I wrote about this. Um, I may have made. I may, I may have an essay or two that orbits the topic a little bit. Yeah. Uh, So you said something like, "Mm, "I think honestly, the spiritual community, quote unquote, whatever that may be, is very poorly equipped to um, evaluate the findings of science and." There's um, a significant divide in the forms of knowledge, the, the ways of knowing, right, between what we think of as spirituality and what we think of as science, particularly what we think of as physics. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a long tradition in the spiritual community, not in the science community, of stealing authority from science so that when science comes up with a theory, Um, Spiritual people produce some kind of usually bizarre um, derivative of that and say things like, oh, spirituality is actually quantum physics. Not true. (laughs) Um, Certainly not true by any scientific standard. And there's this is a problem with human knowledge forms in general. Um, Knowledge forms that are non-evidentiary or modestly evidentiary meaning that they rely on evidence for their models findings and predictions Um, knowledge forms like those commonly used in spiritual discussions um, since they don't have a firm basis to rest the verity or authority of their declarations and models on They commonly steal models from science and then make pretty much baseless and wild claims. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Jung and um, synchronicity. And I don't know the story really deeply, but I know that Wolfgang Pauli, who was a mathematician and physicist, um, became acquainted with Jung. They formed a relationship 
and they sort of made a trade. And the trade was that um, Polly would teach Jung about physics if Jung would uh, put him through analysis, right? Like right. Um, give him therapy, essentially. And so that process did ensue. However, um, eventually it reached a kind of breaking point when Polly told Jung very directly that he had wildly misunderstood and misinterpreted what Polly was trying to teach him. <laughs> and one, one way to read this, it's not the only way, is that Jung did what is relatively natural, not just to people who are in the spiritual community, but to almost anyone who's thinking about these things. He mistakenly transferred ideas from quantum physics or physics itself into therapy. This isn't always a bad move, um, but it's a pretty dangerous move because the two ways of knowing are wildly distinct in how they deal with models, evidence, um, the testability of claims and things like this. Right. Now, you also said something very important, which was <clears throat> we tend to just transfer tags. Yeah. Right. So we hear quantum entanglement and we think some of us think, oh, that's obviously the explanation of all physical, all, all psychical phenomenon. Right. Right. Mm, that's a wild misinterpretation of quantum entanglement. If um, quantum entanglement were that sort of process, it would be apparent to the physicists and it is not apparent to them. Now, of course, you Wait, also you said back something. Up. What, what's, what's not apparent to them? The fact that quantum entanglement means that you affect something one place, it, it, it affects the other thing in the other place simultaneously. Is that what we're talking about, quantum entanglement? So that's called action at a distance, and that's an aspect of uh, quantum physics. And what it means is that effectively... If you take two particles that are entangled, you can separate them by any distance. Say, of course, we can't separate them by huge distances on Earth, um, but let's say you separate them by 10 light years. If you do a measurement on particle A, particle B will necessarily have the opposite measurement. So if it's spin down part of, on particle A, particle B will always be spin up. Right. So I just have a let me let me just explain okay, sure, one sure. one more feature of that. Um, there's a there's an, a seeming violation of relativity there. And the seeming violation is that seeming is the important word here. It should be impossible for any information to be transferred faster than the speed of light. But in this case, it appears and we don't understand the appearance yet that there's some connection that happens faster than light speed, regardless of how distant the particles are, the change is instantaneous. That's still a puzzle. We don't have good explanations for that yet. However, 
the math tells us that no information is being transferred. That's the crucial finding from quantum physics circa 2022. Right. So I just want to jump in and um, I'm not actually going to defend the spiritual, but I do want to speak up for it because, and maybe Mahler can jump in too, um, this idea of non-local effect, you know, you spin something one way, the instantaneously it spins the other way, points to other dimensional realities that, because when they say they can't explain it, of course they can't explain it, because nothing can go faster than the speed of light, and then things are instantaneous, then maybe the universe is not just physical, it's hyper-dimensional. It must be that. Right. Which may relate to the idea that how Marla, as a psychic intuitive, she's not getting her impression. This is where it gets a little muddy, maybe for you and people that you're talking about. So she's not reading, I would think, and Marla, you can jump in, the physicality of things. She is tuning into some hyperdimensionality where she's getting information non-locally if you want to call it that would, would you say that i follow right yeah so um there's space for marla here she wants to comment yeah but well as you both know i i look forward to the dovetailing of these two worlds um this is something that i'm so excited about i'm really ignorant on the science part and would like to uh, learn more. I'm not sure my brain can do it, but I could try. But yeah, I mean, the continued mystery of the information that I can get, that is either extremely helpful or accurate or predictive. Um, there has to be a reason beyond, um, Darren, what was the word that you used beyond trans? A transcendental explanation? Yeah, I don't remember, no. sorry, what word you used. Anyway. If you um, remind me of the context, it may come back to me, but please continue. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> There just has to be, I'll say it very simply, there has to be some explanation. Now, you both know that I'm all about uniting biology and spirituality and how I believe that our biology is more than a vehicle for spirituality or psychic information. It is actually fully participating in that. Um, we agree about that. Do you? Oh, yes. Now, of course, that's a personal religion topic for me, right? I will admit these are my opinions, but yes, we agree in principle about that. I think um, our biology forms something that I call a hyperstructure. That hyperstructure has unique relationships with time and dimensionality and it can sense things in the future and the past. Mm -hmm. So you can't blame people when they hear a concept, uh, like a physics concept, converting it into an explanation for our world, mine and Marla's, and other, that have no explanation, you know? So we're trying to catch reason that will explain the unreasonable. So I think that's, yeah, people can resent that, but 
how else are we going to explain what has no explanation? I mean, I sort of said it, right? Well, one of the problems is with the mind, the aspect of our faculties and mind that wants explanations. Right. This is not necessarily the, the aspect we want to trust. And it's certainly not the aspect with which we have non-ordinary experience or sensing. Um, this aspect wants a grasp on things. It wants to um, approach them in a utilitarian way. It wants a model. It wants um, features in the model that validate the non-ordinary experiences we have. Mm -hmm. And that's a dangerous aspect of consciousness that I don't trust very much. I much more trust the direct experiences, the sensing. I have a friend who's a brilliant psychic who once led me through with no questions, right? 17 statements about my house. Everyone was right. And she might as well have been in my might as well have been in my house. But when you ask her about her explanation for this, it's wildly incoherent in my view, right? It's nothing like the intelligence she's using when she's actually doing what she does. Does that make any sense? Yeah, of course, of course there's, but that doesn't, because people can explain it, doesn't mean, and this is where I'm going for, there's not a science of consciousness, of incarnation, of spirit that maybe we're not evolved to understand. I do believe there is a science that at some point will come online if we want to use that metaphor or make it, but we're not sophisticated at this moment in history to catch that. So I, I would argue that we lack, I would argue that um, since we lack many fundamental concepts about being, relation, time, and consciousness, we're reaching um, unjustifiably toward quantum physics because it sounds pretty spooky and advanced and non-ordinary. Nice. Um, and again, there's, there's a long history of problems where um, spiritual people sort of reinterpret the findings of science to form models that they feel have explanatory power the primary problem here is that a science requires repeatability. A science requires evidentiary testing, right? And when you say that there isn't a science of this, um, there sort of is, and it lies in uh, the direction of things like Advaita Vedanta. Advaita Vedanta, is a is a Hindu tradition of enlightenment. And these people have been studying the nature of consciousness for 1000s of years long before there was anything like science. And while what they're doing isn't particularly scientific, it can provide explanatory frameworks for the experiences that we have. Right? Well, let me just get back to quantum physics separate from spirituality or anything. What I get sure. from quantum physics is that it's not actually a science. There's no science there. There's just explanations and labels. There's no hypothesis. There's no there there from what I've 
little I've read of quantum physics. Does that make sense? It's not a real science as... No, it absolutely is a real science in the sense... Yeah, tell me. In the sense that... um, So look, quantum physics has a long history. It's very involved. We probably can't nutshell it here. But it, it started with... Um, people like Maxwell discovering the equations for electromagnetism, people like Max Planck discovering that at a certain degree of what we could think of as smallness, uh, unusual non-intuitive features of physics immediately emerged to us. This is the Planck length. And then people like Schrodinger who discovered the wave equations that determine how superpositions collapse and things like this. So these things are scientific and we can build quantum mechanical computers. That's definitely a scientific and mathematical proof of concept, right? We can make quantum mechanical computers do things that ordinary computers would take millennia to accomplish. So there certainly is both hard science and technology behind quantum physics. It's not It's blurry to us because it's new, but it is certainly mathematically robust and scientifically robust. Now I'm someone, oh, go ahead, please. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just wondering, is it applicable for anything we're talking about in terms of consciousness, awareness, spiritual, it's not at all. No, it's not. Well, okay. Um, Let's answer this question more carefully. If humans begin to understand anything about the nature of awareness, which is what I'll use as the root term, I'll go, I'll make a ladder, right? Awareness, consciousness, thought and modeling, language, right? So we don't really understand formally anything about consciousness. We, in psychology, and, and such, we have understandings about emotionality, thinking, mindsets, patterns of behavior, stuff like that. But we don't know, we have no knowledge of like what consciousness is. Um, in Advaita Vedanta, for example, and in other um, very old traditions, we have people who've spent their entire lives trying to cut through these first few layers and get direct, get a direct experience of a layer of, for example, the layer that we might call consciousness and beyond that awareness. So these people, rather than having mathematical models, they have pioneered the exploration of the nature of identity, meaning, being, existence, but not scientifically. Make any sense? Is that useful at all? Um, but what about, and Marla, jump in whenever you want. What about the idea that there is a science to incarnation, to spirit? There is at some It's a weird idea. The, the, so (laughs) I think I'm a guy who probably wants us to preserve the distinction between science and consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, Science is a clinical, literalistic array of methods that we use to understand testable things. 
things we can test. Now, someone might argue reasonably that when my friend led me through my house and described each room, that that was an experiment. And the experiment had valid, verifiable results. Mm -hmm. There's um, an incredible pushback from most scientists against um, co-opting physics and quantum physics for what they would think of as non-scientific explanations. But one of the things I hear you saying is, could there be a science of spirituality? Mm -hmm. It's almost like saying, it's almost like saying two things that are fundamentally opposed in their nature, they're going to dovetail. Well, you know, the resolution of uh, contradiction is a synergy that, uh, that creates a new level of awareness, you know, you've heard that. Yes. Right? And that's that's what the beautiful way of putting it. Well, that's what we're looking for but here. Why, why do we want... Hmm. Okay, let me put this another way. Certainly, we have all experienced an amazing kiss. At least one in our lives, let's hope so. Right? A kiss that just alliterated the universe. Okay? Do we really want a science of kissing? What if spirituality is fundamentally about intimacy? And that's something that science is not about, right? What, what but does knowing about, does knowing about the science of two tongues coming together and the chemicals in the brain that are reacting uh, to that physical connection, does that take away from the magic of that phenomenal kiss i personally don't think it does i think it enhances for me i think okay, it depends maybe on the moment maybe not in the moment but before or after it's interesting i that's just want to say i think important. talking about the difference between feeling and thinking basically that's what you're saying here partly but science is an extremely clinical disembodied dissociated um What's the right word? It's a way of making artifacts about findings. And this is not the same kind of thing as sensing, right? It's a, it seems to me a radically distinct way of knowing. Now I'm not saying, for example, that in our spiritual quest to understand the nature of consciousness and minds and souls and time, and the big questions, why are we born? What's, what's actually going on in the universe, all of this. Science can certainly inform these questions deeply and importantly, it can, um, <clears throat> but it can also uh, divert us from forms of awareness and sensing that are crucial to exploring these things, partly because, and this is a personal bias, Science is an extremely left hemispheric like array of purposes, behaviors, and faculties. And I strongly suspect that most of what we classify as spirituality has much more to do with the other hemisphere, the silent hemisphere. Right. But we're not, we're whole brain creatures, and there's a crossover. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, there's a crossover, but that crossover. Okay, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Please continue. Oh, no, on. I'm just saying. If you're just left brain, you're very mechanical. If you're just right brain, you're just sensational, sensing all the time. But if you put them together, you get whole brain being, which is feeling and thinking. Um, that's my take. Okay, so we agree about that in principle, but problematically for moderns, we are extremely prone to some of the um, more dangerous and less broad features of representational cognition, making tags of things, mm -hmm. arranging the tags in orders and models and things, right? Um, there's a brilliant book about this that I recommend anyone who's interested should read it. It's called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. The wait, reason wait, I mentioned this book is- I'm... The Master and Its Emissary? Yeah, the subtext is the divided brain and the making of the Western world. I'm really grateful that Ian wrote this book because I had planned on maybe attempting something like this myself, but thankfully he did it at least as good as I could have done it and probably much better. He's a neuroscientist. And his argument is that our societies are essentially being run by disembodied processes that are functions, features of relatively collapsed left brain like aspects of representational cognition. That was a lot of words. How can I say that more simply? How could you say represent we're trapped representational cognition simply simpler? I mean, yeah. Thinking in concepts and words. That is a tree. This is a chair. Okay. So there was a guy. I'll mention one other important um, mentor of mine. There was a Polish guy named Alfred Korzybski, who was a Russian spy during World War I, brilliant engineer. He wrote a book uh, that has mostly been ignored called Science and Sanity. And in the book, he essentially, he did something very astonishing. And it was so far ahead of his time that most people couldn't understand it. I first encountered this book when I was 17. I couldn't understand it later in a non-ordinary event, the book referenced, and now I understand it very well. But I want to say a couple things about what he did. So <clears throat> as human knowledge and scientific knowledge expands or develops over time, we tend to discover that things that we believed to give us the answers are only um, special cases of much broader things. Let me give you an example. Newtonian physics is a special case of relativity, right? Once we discovered relativity, we realized, oh, Newtonian physics is true at its, in its scope, right? It didn't falsify Newtonian physics, but it showed us that there's a universe beyond that. And similarly, one of the things that we're trying to do right now, everyone's in, I mean, lots of people in physics are working on this, is they're trying to show that relativity is a special case of quantum mechanics. We haven't got there yet. Um, in Euclidean geometry, two, paral two parallel lines never meet, right? This is a fundamental axiom. By changing that axiom, which was, I don't remember who first did this. It might've been Ryman, a mathematician. He decided to just switch that axiom over to its polarity, all parallel lines meet, always. 
And that produced the mathematics of manifolds and non-Euclidean geometry, of which Euclidean geometry is a special case. With me so far? Well, except that logically, think speaking, how do parallel lines meet? I mean, what was his explanation? Because that doesn't make sense within the science of cognition we know. It actually only doesn't make sense. So all of these models are based on axioms. These axioms are assumptions. Right. The assumption that parallel lines never meet is relevant in a specific scope of geometry. But when you, so you've seen like, um, you've seen MC Escher's artwork. You yeah. know who this is? I love him. Yeah. So MC, yeah, MC Escher is a guy who took the principles of non-Euclidean geometry and started making art about them. And if you take, oh. if you realize that there's no non-spherical context in which there are parallel lines, all parallel lines meet. And this turns out to be critically important in understanding things like electromagnetism, gravity. So two dimensions, um, the particularly world is a, is a, is a subset of a bigger reality. Yes. That's what you're yes, saying. Yes. Yes. And in the bigger reality where the context itself is invisibly curved, right? Then you get Riemannian geometry and manifolds. Um, these are bubbles of curved structures that have incredibly complex multiple layer properties. But I want to continue so I don't lose yeah, my go ahead. Yeah, please. point for a moment. Korzybski did something absolutely revolutionary and he was very impressed by Einstein and what he wanted to do was give us a way, he wanted to take the way that we think and take it to a relativistic level. And I want to say something about this briefly. There are many crucial ideas that emerge necessarily from understanding relativity that we never imported into our ideas about identity, location. Just to give a simple example, is that um, in, maybe it's not that simple, maybe I could skip this. I'll just say something brief. In relativity, each entity that can be treated as an observer has an entirely unique timeline that is not shared by any other observer. What that means fundamentally is that the idea of simultaneous experience is formally impossible. Each experiencer is having unique experience. That has implications for the meaning of time. Dramatic well, it also has implications for the meaning of consciousness. If I mean, there's it not, does, and I and I do agree with that. Absolutely, I, I totally agree that we all live in our own universe. Yes. So one of the repercussions of this, and I'll get back to Korzybski in a moment, is that time is not flat. The nature of time has to do with how many unique observers you have per moment in, in, such, in some context. So for example, we think, we think human beings are about, I'm gonna take a wild guess here, uh, 1.2 million years old. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
But in order to understand the age of human beings, we'd have to multiply that by how many human beings there are because each of them had a unique experience of time. Right. We are much, much older. And then since we were comprised of 60 trillion cells and those cells for a cell, maybe an hour is a month in terms of their experiential time. Right. You have an incredible profusion of living temporality in any organism, even an ant or a cell. Right? But I want to go back to Korzybski um, briefly. So what he did is he took the Aristotelian axiom of identity, which is A equals A. A tree is a tree. Joe is a man. All men are mortal. Therefore, Joe is mortal. Right? And he said, you know what? Not only is that unlikely, it's provably false. Mm -hmm. Whatever Joe might be, he cannot be a tag. Right. So he said A equals not A. And right. this is, it's impossible to communicate the importance of that one axiomatic shift because First of all, it's absolutely true. Things are not the tags we use to refer to them with. So A they can never be. A is never A. A is right. never equal to A. Never ever. Right. And never. It can't There's be. no circumstance under which A is equal to A. You get the it only that, place Marla? that you can't have one thing as another thing. There's no equivalent. That was a huge breakthrough. Yeah. So go ahead, Darren. Yeah. It's so important because we think in Aristotelian terms about identity. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that we substitute tags for being. Wow. And this is part of the problem with science, right? Science wants to cut everything up into little bits and then show how the cuts that they themselves made relate to each other. It's not surprising that they relate to each other. You guys made the cuts, wow. right? You cut, the, you cut the orange into pieces. Now you're gonna tell us the structure of the relation? Yes, but you made the cuts. And this is the problem with measurement in quantum physics. Remember when we spoke about particles that transform instantaneously, the crucial feature was that one of them is being measured, mm. right? We're making cuts. We're gonna say, okay, it has this kind of spin. It has this kind of charge. It's this kind of particle. There are no particles. That's a toy. And the humans have a problem in general with mistaking the toys that they make about meaning, identity, and relation for the truth. And Korzybski was the first modern person to say, we would be much better off to be silent, completely still in the aspect of our awareness that declares identity mm, he awesome. trained people in this and had miraculous results all kinds there's all kinds of brilliant stories about him oh, i want to give, give a couple of one examples. story one example yes <clears throat> so um i'll give a few so uh now let me say a couple more things about korzybski his book is extremely complex and it's very long it's 900 pages long Science it's, and again, sanity. it's called the Science, Science and Sanity. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And by the way, when I had my extreme non-ordinary experience in 2002, I was working on an essay called Symbols and Sanity that was a derivative of his ideas. Um, <clears throat> in any case, 
So he was aware that a specific woman that he was working with was allergic to roses and she was extremely allergic to roses. So when he showed up at her house to visit her, he brought a bouquet of roses with him. And she immediately started sneezing and getting hives and all this. And she said, I can't believe you do this. You know me really well. You know I'm this allergic to roses. Why would you bring roses? And Korzybski turned to her and said, yes, but these aren't roses. These are artificial flowers. Are you allergic to those? by which he demonstrated that we have physical reactions to our ideas, thoughts, and tags. Right. That's um, a good story. That's good. Yes. <laughs> so he's trying to say we're really pathologically bound up and, and we have physical responses to this binding in our relationship with identity and concepts. So what he's saying is we would be much better off if we took the concepts as extremely provisional and incomplete. Yeah. Um, obviously, if you look at a chair and you wanted to do an inventory of qualities that the chair has, that inventory would be infinite. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what we do is a process called exception. Um, habits and what we've learned from our cultures and in language determine what qualities we excerpt from the chairs, actual situation to display to ourselves, discuss or form models about. And that exception is often driven by pathological processes. Right. It's what the, it's so he what, wanted us to develop awareness. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying it is what pathology actually is. People have ideas, you know, they have labels, they they make people into things, and then they're going to shoot those things about their own ideas that they've created in their own mind, and that's what the violence in the world is about. Yeah. Yes, the violence does. It is deeply bound up with that. And let's just take a breather here because I've been lecturing fairly, you know, intensely for a moment and we can come back to any questions about this. But I wanted to introduce the idea that whatever we think something is, it is not that. And that's an extremely counterintuitive idea to most of us. We depend on what we think things are. I'll mention a couple of other important ideas. All theories are wrong. <laughs> All of them. Every single theory is wrong. It's a theory. It can't Some be. theories are useful. Some theories are dangerous. Some theories are both. Um, all theories are wrong. There's another thought in my mind, but I'll have to hold on for a moment. Well, that, Let's it, just take a, a breather. All theories are wrong. Isn't that a theory that's also wrong? Therefore, it's right. You know, that reverse. Yes, that's a that's an important position. Yeah. Um, in this case, uh, let me show you an, another feature of cognition here. Mm -hmm. This is something that I'm a little bit proud of because I solved an old paradox. You've probably heard the paradox. This statement is false. Exactly. Exactly. That's why. Okay. That's why I was going. Yeah. Great. 
so this is called the um this is named after what it's either bertrand russell or alfred lord north whitehead i think it's probably russell it's, it's probably russell's paradox and what we see here is a puzzle that if you can solve it will teach us something really important about our minds and there are two problems with this paradox the first is um, this statement is false has no content there's no content in that statement right there's no content that could be true or false so it's, it's a, a statement about statement. a statement which is meaningless because there's no meaning and is that what you're saying it's a yes there's no content that we could validate or refute right right, right. it's just the um it's just the shell of a declaration with no content in it right. most people won't notice that right they'll just become confused because if it's false it's true if it's true it's false my, my, my friend a mathematician prefers the version where you have a, an index card and on one side it says the statement on the other side of this card is false and on the other side it says the statement on the other side of this card is true he likes he likes paired conjugates because they're more reliable and he's right about that so here's the resolution of that statement and it and you're going to see the same problem that you saw with all theories are false this is an answer to this paradox that i came up with no statement shall by self-reference or other means promote itself to becoming a mind mm. a mind determines what is true and false yes no statement shall through self-reference or other means promote itself to the appearance of a mind of being a mind to telling us what it means no statement tells humans what it means is the simplest version and well, so this statement does that it promotes itself to mind order yeah, it says, I will, I'm a statement, but I can tell you what is true or false. No statement can do that. Only minds do that. Go ahead, Alan. No, I was just saying, aren't all statements um, mind references? You know, the sky is blue, the grass is green. You know, all that is mind references, right? And yes, they, but also notice, yeah. notice that there's, yes, that's true. Go ahead. I'm listening. No, but go ahead. No, what were you going to say? No. All right, so if I say that no statement shall pretend to be a mind, right, then that statement falls under the same problem as the one you mentioned earlier, all theories are wrong is a theory. Mm -hmm. Right. See the problem? I made a statement about statements. So isn't that statement subject to its own yeah. um, violation, self-violation? Yeah. Right? There turns out that there's a problem here with what we call orders, mm. the order of statements, the order of minds that interpret statements, and the order of awareness. And the two statements I made aren't at the same order. They're not mere statements. They're statements at the order of minds that interpret statements. And so they're not self-violating in the same way that all that... um this statement is false is self-violating mm. because they're at higher order statements. They're not subject to exactly the same constraints. Um, but there's something more I want to say about this. Let me see. What is it? It is that. <clears throat> I'll come back to it. It'll come to me. Oh yes, I get it. Oh, go All ahead. right. Go ahead. So here's, here's the thing 
with um, no statement shall promote itself to the order of minds that interpret statements. What that statement does is sort of messianic. Yes, it destroys itself, but in so doing, it destroys the delusion we were previously in the grip of. That's the crucial feature of both of these things. All theories are wrong. It destroys the delusion. It doesn't matter whether technically that's a theory. It relieves us from eons of delusory thinking that humans constantly do. Does it make any sense what I said? Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. Does it make sense to you, Marla? Completely. Because so it has that property of relieving us. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. I'm just going to say, this is like my dream conversation. <laughs> I can't thank you enough. I'm like, I'm uncharacteristically silent because I'm so thrilled. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Because I think um, the only thing I would like to um, know a little bit more about is clarifying mind in terms of awareness, conscious, all that. Yeah. This is the ancient question. Um, now, of course, look, I can say, I can even show you models that explain psychism, past lives, the ability to tell the future, remote viewing. I can show you models that explain this. I don't trust them. I think of them as toys, right? Because I know that my theories are wrong. What I'm looking for isn't the theory that's true. I'm looking for a theory that's better than what we usually play with. And this is something that Korzybski was, was doing. This is something that E.A. McGilchrist is very interested in because both of these people had deep abiding heartfelt concerns about problems like injustice, technology, human stupidity, the rapacious devastation of the environment, and these kinds of things. So they wanted to understand why are humans as a species doing things that are clearly insane, right? And they were burning with this desire. And I was too. And when I was writing my essay, this was the desire at the core of my heart. I wanted to understand how did the humans get this broken? And is there any medicine for this at all? Is there any chance of helping not just me and my friends, but maybe our species and the planet? So occasionally someone comes up with something that rips the veil of delusion from our ordinary thought and at least gives us the space in which we can explore again authentically. The necessity of doubting our own theories seems crucial to this because otherwise we become religious. I do too, right? I have to remind myself, Darren, these are toys. The actual nature of what's going on cannot be encompassed by them. Your theory is not the reality and so on. And by the way, I'm really excited about this conversation too. I'm just having so much fun. <laughs> Um, but I, I think what you're giving us is um, different perspectives on on the world, which, you know, me and Marla and probably people listening to this want to know because the world is not the world. As if right. No, it's not. And probably, I mean, one of my pet theories is that all of the features of time space all of the beings, all of the planets, all of the aliens, everything, it's all right here. 
Each planet in time space is like a crystallization of the qualities and character and intelligence of the whole thing. And it's a very profoundly rich local crystallization, but all of the features are there. And what that essentially means is we don't need space travel. We need to understand organisms. Well, that's why Marla can do what she does, travel through the universe just by sitting in her chair. (laughs) Yeah, there's some question about whether what she's doing is... is Go ahead, please. Sorry. No, no, no. There's some question about whether what she's doing is travel or is reading. Or 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 is imagining. I mean, this is why questions are so important. But and that's, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, no, you know, it took me, Alan, as you know, a very long time to trust my psychic senses and the information I was receiving. And that's important. We'll Bookmark never, that. We'll never Bookmark get that. confirmation about some of it or maybe a lot of it. But the things that we do get confirmation about, I always find astounding every single time. Right. You know, what I what I want to say right now is that this is why questions are so important. And this is why not knowing is so important. And I want to tell you the personal experience that I'm having right now. By all means. And I have and I've had this with Darren. Um, I would think knowing my personality, because I love to label things. I love to, I love to nail them down. I love to put them in folders. So I would think that the conversation we're having actually would make me uncomfortable, but you know what? I find it completely freeing. That's beautiful. Hmm. Well, so I want to come back to what you said about trusting and how it took you a long time to trust mm -hmm. your senses. Mm-hmm. In the grip of my experience, um, how can I say this? Let's see. I was learning things that are not like how humans think at all. And there was an aspect of my consciousness that completely rejected that. It, it fought tooth and nail to not let that in. And part of the reason it doesn't want to let that in, I think, is that the way of knowing that dominates our waking mind doesn't want a partner. It doesn't want extrasensory perception. It doesn't want, that would mean that it gets dethroned and maybe blamed and maybe accused and maybe indicted for all the things it did and didn't do right? Which of course isn't the case, but it's concerned about this. So even these days, I remember one time I was, was in a really bad way and I was talking to the sun and I was standing on my porch talking to the sun. And suddenly the sun began to teach me amazing things. It answered and I wasn't expecting an answer. This is long after my experience. And part of my mind literally just froze up and said, no, 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 no. You don't, you're not supposed to know this. Humans don't get to know this. No, 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 no. And when I could translate what the sun had said, so to speak, into something I could communicate to other human beings so that that part of my mind had a role, then it cooled down. But before that, it was like, absolutely not. Not letting this in. 
this can't be, right? So there's some aspect of our ordinary consciousness that at least under some circumstances is highly motivated to hold the throne, right? Hold the throne. I know that's a tree. I know this is my foot. I know what I know. Knowledge is knowledge. It's not, oh, go ahead. it's not unrelated to the problem at the tree in Eden. What was the problem at the tree? We got knowledge. What is this knowledge stuff? We might want to look much more closely at that because there's a bunch of problems with it. And of course, there's different kinds of knowledge, but the representational knowledge is troubling. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to ask you a personal question. Maybe it's Mm. personal. I doubt it. I'm open. um, What you're smoking cigarettes because you're calling them cigarettes because you and could you smoke like a, a, a branch off a tree instead and call it that? So you, you, you yeah, what you're doing is you're using Korzybski's yeah. theory of semantic reactions. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, and you're saying, yes, with some training, that might be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably not just off the cuff, because there's a vast um, landscape of history and habit, and there, and those things have gravity emotionally, physically, conceptually to us. Yeah. So this is why learning what Korzybski said doesn't free us. We have to practice it somehow. But yes, in theory, sure, you could substitute semantic reactions if you were very skillful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Part of our conversation makes me think of Magritte. Yes. Now. Yes. Um, the part of us that you were talking about that doesn't want to be dethroned, we can all relate to that. But doesn't it seem like a younger, more immature part of ourselves? It's not only young, it's barely been on the surface of the planet. It's, it's so incredibly new compared to the age of life, but it's so compelling that it could take life on this planet apart and wreck it and probably will, at least for the complex animals that have thus far survived. It's a really, in my view, it's an extremely dangerous, deadly thing. It's a lethal thing in the sense of forgetting, right? Like the river Lethe that we were dipped in between lives in the myth. It causes us to forget not just the nature of being and existence and dreaming, but it causes us to forget the fundamental aspects of ourselves that we bring into our human births. So it's lethal in that sense. Mm-hmm. And the process builds momentum over time. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like a curve that just keeps mm-hmm. ramping up. We keep losing more and more with each generation in this model, which is false. <laughs> well, it's so so powerful and you know darren we didn't talk about this in our conversation but i spend uh, most of my waking hours having mystical experiences what a luxury i don't know is it yes i guess it is somebody just said that to me recently that my life was very blessed but it's also i'm just going to say a, a, a serious challenge sometimes to yes shop in the grocery store when you're also yes. communicating with other dimensions. But um, so sometimes I feel like a, an 
I feel like a mystic sometimes who is a very inadequate human, but um, I, I have the luxury of being exposed all day long to alternate realities or bigger realities. I'm always being asked to step out of that uh, mind that doesn't want to be dethroned. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't fall into it all the time, but I do have, um, I'm just going to share a very simple little story, if nobody minds. No, By all means. stories, Marla. I don't know. But this just <laughs> happened recently, so it's so fresh. So, um, and, and you know, we all struggle with this so much, it's so human. So I recently had trouble in a romantic relationship and I was never so confused by a situation in my life. And I was like Don Quixote uh, fighting windmill, uh, windmills. You know, I was trying to make sense of things. I was trying to determine who was wrong and when, and you know, all of this stuff. And I knew, I knew that I was just trying to make sense of it. I knew I was just trying to file things down to um, find the essence of peace, really. That's what I really wanted more than anything. And it took me a while to get to that point that I even could realize that. Now, um, I sometimes work with an ascended Buddhist master and um, he's quite funny and his humor is always pointed and sarcastic uh, very often about me and my inadequacies. But um, I was, this is so vulnerable, I can't believe I'm telling it, but <laughs> no, I come from Danish, German, and also French people, but those are my primary things. And I grew up in the kind of culture, my parents were from the Midwest, and you take like that Danish, German thing, and, you know, put a, a Midwestern parents upbringing. We, are, we do not embrace emotions in my family. You know, there are people who do embrace the drama and the emotions. No, this is not my family. This is not me. I want to get back to stasis kind of as quickly as possible. And this is not, I'm not saying this is a good model because I don't think it is, but this is what I was struggling with. Like, how do I not feel these feelings? How do I, oh, I'm going to tell you this juicy part, but it's so vulnerable. So two of my guides said to me, if you cut off from this man, which is what I wanted to do, because I didn't want to feel my feelings and I didn't want to feel hurt and etc. If you cut off from this man, you will cut off from the flow of life. This is a huge, huge statement. And it took me honestly, a couple of weeks to grapple with that and to think about it. Like, why would that cut me off from the flow of life? Obviously, if I'm shut down in any way, I'm cut off from the flow of my own life at least, right? And then um, the next lesson, once I got that one, was to say to this man about 12 times with his name in it, I care about you face-to-face, -face, well, FaceTime, but, you know, face-to-face. -face. And that was really challenging for me because I don't know how I feel about him. And I, you know, I'm trying to still accept the confusion. And then the <clears throat> next lesson happened yesterday. And 
this ascended being said to me, say to this man, I love you with all my heart and keep repeating it. Now, because I like to ask questions and because I like to think, not in the way Darren does, I wish I did, but um, admitting that you love someone when you're trying not to really gets rid of a lot of conflict, right? But also, not that I know anything really about energy, although I work with it all the time, it seems to me that the energy then through thought and through feeling whatever then becomes focused, which is also more comfortable. And it also loosens up all that conflict, right? I already said that part. So yeah, this was just a very small, but you know, important in my life, of course, and something that we all experience is that I'm going to be thinking of it as the mind that does not want to be dethroned. Did you, what mm -hmm. label did you give that, Darren? Um, so <clears throat> McGilchrist in his uh, model of what's going on, he, he named his book, The Master and the Emissary, because he's using a metaphor and the metaphor is yeah. <clears throat> that the rightful king has a messenger or queen right the rightful sovereign and over time the messenger becomes very arrogant and um, dissociated from the relationship and just starts running around doing essentially insane and lethal things so in his model it's the emissary um, mm -hmm. i think of it this i don't have a a clear derivative name for it. So I would say it is, um, these are faculties native to representational cognition and consciousness, the layer of consciousness where we make representations, models, and they are graspable. This has a lot to do with our dominant hand physically. That hand wants to grasp things. The problem with that hand is that when it grasps a thing, it tends to become the tool. Put a gun in a man's hand, the man becomes a gun, right? So there's, there's a problem with our awareness and identity collapsing into the functions of representational cognition. That's, mm -hmm. that's one thing I would say. There's a few interesting features of what you shared, Marla. Um, <clears throat> Well, may I just say something before you launch yes. in? I'd love to hear what you Please. have to say. After being firmly on the spiritual path for 25 years, I think I might have learned this before now. <laughs> but I I think that, you know, that's part of mastery, isn't it? We just have to keep learning. We have to keep asking questions. We have to keep learning. We have to keep having experiences that help us to learn. And being able to look at the larger picture, because really, if I could just go on for one moment, the situation is not about that man at all. That's why I mentioned Don Quixote. It's about my lesson about how to keep life open and flowing in myself, most especially, and then with others, right? But I do think that I would have learned a little bit of more of this 
but it, but I do feel like I learned it um, this time, and I'm sure I'll have to relearn it again. Um, I feel like I learned it this time in my body, as well as in the mind and the heart. And that seems really fundamentally important. I've learned it in the heart before, and the mind can go anywhere, right? But I feel like yes. my body gets it. So one of the things I hear you saying is that the advice of the ascended master who effectively declared things to you, mm -hmm. right? this person declared things. They said, for example, if you break off relations with this man, you will lose something very valuable. Could be true. Might not be true. I agree. But you trusted it. I did. Yes, you agreed. That's the important thing. And by the way, this is one of the most misused and foundational abilities that we have as human beings is agreement. What will we agree with? What will we not agree with? What will we be neutral towards? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's very um, rudimentary aspect of consciousness that we don't pay enough attention to. In any case, in your case, at the present time, um, you feel comfortable with this agreement and that it's actually been helpful and relieved. Only because um, I've worked stress. with him for so long. Uh, so I have a repeat. I worked with experience. him. Yeah, you mean the ascended master in this case, not the guy with the, not the romantic guy. Yeah. Yes. So I question everything, but um, I have come to realize. So that I think that's really valuable. I follow. Hmm. So where shall we go from here? Help me understand the point underneath your story something you were trying to show us with this story that I may not have seen yet. I'm still trying to make meaning out of what you shared. Can you help me in that regard in some way? I'm not meaning to challenge you. I'm just a no, little bit lost. I well, I think it's the, it's a little personal story of the master and the emissary. And which, although I haven't huh. read that book, and so of course I don't understand it, but um, it's a little- No, but you mean about, in a sense. It's a little story about rising a step above the mind that doesn't want to be dethroned, which I, uh, like yes, everybody I else, yes. has spent most of my life in. Me and too. This has been a, a slow process. And I'm really grateful to this man for presenting this opportunity that we created together so I can learn this. I mean, this, this lesson will inform really the rest of my life about um, what love can be instead of what I think it is. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. And what the energy of love is. Last night I was thinking about this and I was thinking really if love represents an energy that is flowing, and I don't know if it does, but that's what I'm going to say right now, based on my personal experience, rather than being clamped down, shut down, stuck, 
um, then it's really a state of grace. And those are words that make me feel better about being in a state of open love. That's beautiful. Which has nothing now, to see, do this with is, relationship. It has nothing to do with This is a great example of, of a situation in which my clinical intelligence is not important. It's true. Right? I can and have all kinds of analyses that's, that's and the other point of my fucking story. whatever. Yes. Yes. So whatever happened, I mean, let's just say that the ascended master is a wise, snappy um, aspect of my own being. Whatever that ascended sure. master is, you know, because I perceive him as being outside of me. But what if he's not? What if he's just an aspect of me? What and that makes me feel a little crazy when I say that. However, that aspect is working for me, can whether can, it's exterior or internal. Can I pose yeah. another question, Marla, to you? What if you are an aspect of that ascended being and the illusion? Oh, that's a great question, Ellen. <clears throat> well, that's what comes to me. Maybe the illusion is that small personality and you really are that it's just a theory and no theories are true but that's a theory <laughs> oh my god i love that see that's really freeing too isn't it yes because we know that we have those of us who have these experiences know that we have access to greater information yes uh, yeah what if i mean and that talks about you know the spirit and the soul and all of that but i i love giving the larger an identity <laughs> that's so comforting to me <laughs> but also the the that's reverse. the problem yes yes but well, the reverse are you, are you, it is very comforting are you the cell are you the hand <clears throat> are you the arm are you the body i mean where do you begin and end i mean the map I love this, Alan. Korbinski was saying it's not quite the same thing, but the map is not the territory. You know? Yes, that's his most famous quote. But and, let's let's right. take that apart a little bit. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Please continue. Oh, no, Alan, I'm just please. saying the map is Marla. The territory is is the great being. Anyway, yeah, let's take it apart the way you wanted. To. Yes. Okay. Great. I just want to say something briefly about the map is not the territory that it, that it's a recent I've been thinking a lot about Korzybski over the past couple of weeks and reading and so on. So when we make maps, what we're doing is we're making an overtime derivation of something and what we tend to excerpt what we preserve in consciousness and pay attention to are the features that don't change the reliable features right. in the map. And this is the thing that Korzybski said about humans. He said, we are time-binding animals. And what he meant was, we transfer knowledge, representational knowledge, across generations in language and concept and models and so on. So a map is actually a really weird thing. It's, it's a model of what you, of the, the most obvious features you can derive that, that are least likely to change over time. This is the problem right here. We want graspable, unchanging things. Humans want to offload vigilance. Vigilance is a huge load on us, what we have to pay attention to and worry about and so on. Love, 
Love can become the absolute focus of vigilance. We all know this. So we're trying to offload vigilance, produce more predictable, more predictable situations. Think about our homes, right? I can name one feature of a home that probably nobody has thought of, which is that almost all of it is rectangles. Look around you at the moment. How many rectangles do you see? There are no rectangles in nature, but they are very predictable and they cut things into frames and we can deal with what's inside the frame and exclude all the other stuff out. That's the, the rectangle for humans is almost the crucifix of the representational mind. I will cut this one little part out. That's the part I'll pay attention to. The rest of the universe can go to hell, you know? And the other problem with this is we've created a kind of outer space inside nature, a space where life, novelty, ambiguity is evicted. And what we get out of that is what we call convenience. But a lot of that convenience is we don't have to pay attention to it anymore. We can offload the vigilance faculties that we would ordinarily use here. Um, What if we made a map of the features of of a terrain that always change? Mm Then we'd have the right Isn't hemispheres map. True. Isn't it true? Yes. And are we so much more flexible, adaptable, et cetera, if we can do that? Yeah. Part, when you said earlier, Marla, you said something about imagination and non-ordinary sensing. Um, <clears throat> one of the things you're saying is, I have faculties in my mind that introduce meaningful ambiguity. hmm returns ambiguity to the construct. And this is the grasping hand starting to open, right? And now there's like space between there and that's ambiguous, that space stuff, what's in there? I don't know what that is, wow, right? So this is part of what people like Korzybski and Ian McGilchrist were asking us to begin to pay attention to. This grasping thing, this formalizing thing, this knowledge thing, this making artifacts and tags and models thing. We don't wanna get rid of it, but we should realize its limitations and try to um, encompass those faculties in their origin. And their origin really is, how to put it, the soul, the dreaming mind the imagination, the creative intelligence, the creative aspects of intelligence, the playful aspects of intelligence that are largely evicted from much of our modern experience. And one of the best ways to evict them is to form an explanation. This is why I'm kind of like, hmm, do science and spirituality really go together? Well, they can in some cases, but wow, these are really, these have different fathers, right? Mm -hmm. They have different parents. And in a sense, I think, I'm sorry. But we have blended families now with children of different fathers. So is it possible that someday there can be more intersection? No, no, I think it happens every time we dream. Between science I mean, and for me, No, no, I just mean, um, that's not what I meant there. I meant that um, when we dream, the iron grip of, of the representational mind is relaxed, mm-hmm. right? And if it starts to grip, the dream will show signs of it starting to grip. Mm-hmm. Someone will show up with a legal, legal document in a dream or we'll try to use our smartphone or something like this, right? 
Um, but in terms of science and spirituality, I can imagine not just a future, but a, a human mind or even a group of humans in whom these two ways of knowing become coherent together. But in that coherence, science as science would dissolve. It wouldn't be regular science anymore. Yes, it would dissolve. Yeah. You know, um, I now have, again, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I have a friend who's a biologist and he has extraordinary psychic abilities and he's hmm. extremely connected. And I met him about three years ago and he refused, absolutely refused to admit that there was anything like psychic phenomena. And yet there he was. And now after three years of being friends and having a million discussions and, and many experiences together, he has, as you said, opened up the hand. He doesn't have a label for what he can do. So he um, didn't want to call it psychic, but it, for you it was psychic, but he was not calling it that because- That's important. He doesn't want to limit- That's the key is. thing. Yeah. Well, and he's coming from a scientific That's model. That's the key so thing right there. He also doesn't- medical equation for it, then he can't be proven, and then it doesn't exist. But there it was existing in him the whole time. Go but, ahead, Darren. Darren, yeah, what were you saying? The key thing is. So, lost my focus there for a moment because I was paying close attention to, to Marla. No, um, we're saying that he didn't want to call himself psychic because that would limit him. And you said something about being the key. Oh, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yes, that's there's so there's a bunch of problems there. I don't want, I don't like the word psychic. I don't either. <laughs> I don't like the, it's very value laden. There's a bunch of historical. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of this word. Um, I'm not opposed to the idea Me too. that underlies the word, but I am kind of opposed to the word because I think the word comes with a lot of baggage that we'd be better off without. Exactly what I always and it say. strikes me that your friend, that it strikes me that your friend was just being honest about that, right? saying like, I don't know. He was saying, look, I don't know what it is that's happening. I have these things I can't explain, these experiences I can't explain, and I trust them and they seem important and real to me, but it isn't psychism. It's, I'm not gonna put that label on it. And, and he was not going to accept as part of his identity that he had special abilities that were not verifiable. The hilarious thing about that, and any good scientist should know this. Okay, this brings me back to something I want to say about science, math, and physics. Um, give me just a moment here. So in the 20s, there was a movement among mathematicians and philosophers called logical positivism. And this is a, okay, there's another complex word from philosophy that I'm gonna use here, not because I'm trying to use $10 words, but these concepts are useful 
to look into. The other part of this is we still have a bunch of philosophers today who are what we might call eliminative materialists. And what that means, at least in my mind, is they want to get rid of everything that can't be explained and tested. All that stuff has to be evicted. Just get it out of the way. Right? If there's no way to test it, we don't have to think about it ever again. Um, which is weird because obviously there would be things that we haven't figured out yet how to test, but that mm -hmm. are actually testable. Mm -hmm. So the logical positivists were on a mission and their mission was, and this led to the age of computers and so on. Alan Turing was one of the results of this um, imperative or, sorry about the noise. In any case, in the 20s, the goal was to lay mathematics on a firm, logical foundation. Up until that time, it had not been, um, even though we think of mathematics as like the most exact and reliable form of knowing that we've ever come across, and it certainly merits such bizarre praise. They expected, within a very short period of time, to solve a problem at the root of mathematics, which is how to prove irrefutably, for example, that one plus one always equals two. And Alfred Lord North Whitehead and Bertrand Russell began writing a book called the Principia Mathematica. They worked on it for 25 years. We expected that within a few years, we would have a theory of everything and that nothing would be outside the grasp of our testable analysis and modeling mathematically. And this was the goal. <clears throat> That goal failed catastrophically. Um, Einstein's best friend, Kurt Gödel, an insane Austrian mathematician, developed two mathematical proofs called the incompleteness theorems. And what those proofs declared essentially irrefutably, and by the way, this is a situation where he's saying, no, no, the theory is true, right? They irrefutably declared that, that mathematical systems are necessarily incomplete. And in a sense, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm gonna go back to your friend. Most good scientists know that the mind with which they do science cannot be encompassed by science. The mind that determines whether a theory is good, the mind that forms the model, the mind that evaluates the models, this is not capturable in the science or the math or the models. And in a sense, one could understand Gödel to have been saying this, right? There's the math, but then there's the mathematician. What about the mathematician? I know. Without whom the math is meaning, meaningless, totally meaningless without the mathematician, right? And you can't include that in the math. And since you can't include that in the math, there's no logical foundation for mathematics. It's a provisional foundation. Right. Um, so then we had Heisenberg's uncertainty principle arise in physics, where the axiom became you can either measure the location or what is it? Or is it, is it the mass or the velocity? I can't remember exactly. I think it's location or velocity, location or vector or something. But once you measure one, the other information disappears from your access. You can't get both. Um, can't measure location the and, and the location at the same time, can you? Yes, yes, yes. Velocity and location. So you have to pick one. And 
all of these things began to transform how people who wanted to remain aware of them would think about science and mathematics for forever after or until we get better toys, right? The incompleteness, your friend was kind of saying, the idea of psychism is, is both not necessarily what I think is going on mm -hmm. and also wildly incomplete compared to what I'm actually experiencing. And I struggle with this too, because I want to have some words. So I usually use words like non-ordinary experience or- mm -hmm. I love um, that. Can we make actually, that a term? <laughs> if you wish. And then for psychic experience, I call that transcendence, like beyond ordinary sentience. But these are just my pet words. They're not important. I'm not trying to get anyone to, you know, Use them. No, but I love the non-ordinary experience. You know, that's that phrase, I'm just writing it down, is a beautiful vessel that can hold so many things. So thank you for that. Have I lost both of you? No, I'm here. It's just in the kitchen. <laughs> disembodied but, voice says a non-ordinary experience a non-ordinary experience <laughs> it's funny but you know aren't you just them just playing the same game when you just relabel something meaning the same thing i mean it's like exactly the opposite of what you were saying good point but we need it's a good that point as humans we need that you know the non-ordinary experience phrase gives us a place to put things. And but Alan's also me, right. No, I know I, I get his point and I, I know he's right, but Aaron, you and I have talked about this, the anxiety that people feel who are having spiritual or psychic experiences um, is so tremendous. Uh, for many people, not everybody, certainly. But what is um, the anxiety? Can you explain what you mean? Yeah, because I bet you never had it. No, um, I don't think the so. Anxiety. Cause, cause I love those moments. That's the thing. They're so exciting. They're very different. Yeah. Um, there are two extremes in people who have spiritual or psychic experiences. One is that, like me, Alan, my experiences were so intense and came on so quickly that I didn't have a place to put any of it, and I didn't have any reference points. And as you've heard before, poor Marla didn't have any community or teachers. So I was just out there floating by myself and had to figure everything out. This, with my personality, um, <laughs> caused overwhelm and a great deal of anxiety. No, I get that part. I get you didn't have it. Well, well, yeah, I grew up in a community. But you know what? There are many people like you who are like, bring it on, bring it on, well, bring no, it on. No, because we grew up or evolved in, in with a community that started to say, hey, there's something to this. There's something here. Let's let's explore it. And you said the key word, community. Had I had a community and people to talk to these things about, it I'm sure would have been easier, but this was 25 years ago. Now, the opposite end of the spectrum are people who desire to have these experiences more than anything. 
and they have determined that they are blocked and that they cannot have these experiences, even if they already are having them. And this, it takes some real, um, this is something that just, I don't know, I've used the velvet hammer a lot to try to get people to loosen up. They are generally already having experiences, but they are so convinced that they are not having the right experiences, that they are in complete denial, that they're having these non-ordinary experiences. I don't so know what the, the right experiences would mean, actually. You what, sorry? I don't know what, the when you say the right experiences, I don't know what the- Yeah, right let me tell you. Well, through our history, when we think about saints or seers or whatever, we have um, mainly talked about visions and auditory messages. So there's some uh, talk, of course, about ecstasy, which is an emotional feeling, but most of it, somehow we've gotten the message that if we're having visions or messages, we're doing it, we're having those experiences. If we're having other experiences, um, feeling falls into that category often, body experiences, um, these are generally the people who feel that they're blocked. So either people are really frustrated or they're overwhelmed. And then there's millions of experiences in between. But what I'm motivated about is reducing both of those extremes in people. So, okay, so, so just to get back to that. So the non-ordinary experience, even though it's a label, it's a tag, whatever, it's very comforting to the, it's very comforting. And I think that the mind can accommodate it better. And it's a big vessel because as you said, the word psychic has so many connotations, values, but also people assume that they should have these ex specific experiences like I was talking about, right? So I don't know, I'm thrilled about this new label of non-ordinary experience. I think one of the things that's useful about, about it- my point. Go so, ahead. So there's, there's something that, that, that's useful about it, even taking into consideration Alan's um, objection, and I and I take Alan's objection seriously. I do too. Um, isn't it just another label? Yes, it is. But since it's a fresh and largely non-descriptive label, it's very open. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. An example: I had a non-ordinary experience last night during a phone call. I walked into the house for a moment to get something, and there was some kind of absolutely bizarre insect doing something that i couldn't even understand what it was doing physically and i'm an insect guy i almost never see an insect that i don't know what it is i had no idea what this thing was i've never seen anything like it and over time as i was relating with it i won't tell the whole story it's not necessary but on the carpet in the hallway it looked like something i couldn't even understand what the hell that is it was busy physically. <clears throat> Once I got it in a cup, it stopped doing that behavior. And it was very obvious to me at that moment, oh, this is a cricket. It was a cricket. And the hall was doing something I've never seen it ever do. And 
it didn't look anything like a cricket. It looked, what the hell is that? That's an unordinary experience. That's an experience where I encounter something. Yeah. Um, Just curious. So apparently. But it turned out to be an ordinary experience because you were able to categorize it. Yeah, no. But you were in a non-ordinary state, perhaps. I was in a state of not being able to know the what, right? I couldn't know the what. I knew it was an insect. I knew it's this class of life, but I didn't understand its behavior or, and this is uncommon for me. I've been around insects my whole life. In any case, I wanna say a few things about this. So Marla is correct in the, in the sense that a non-ordinary experience once I did the is of identity in Korchevskian terms, right? Once I said, oh, even, even actually before when I still didn't know what it was, I knew it was an insect, Yeah. right? At least I was pretty sure I knew what class of life it belonged to and that it was an organism and so on. <clears throat> but, oh God, there's so much I want to say about this. Okay, let me not get lost here. So that's an ordinary, non-ordinary experience. It's the thing that actually happened with a physical creature, but it was non-ordinary for me because for part of that experience, my capacity to say, I know what it is, was suspended. That's part of the thing that makes a non-ordinary experience. And that's what what it is. That's what gives us the room. The anxiety I think comes from the problem that in an ordinary, common, waking, representational person, the sudden onset of non-ordinary experience draws into question the entire history of their mind. Everything they ever thought or did or believed, right, is suddenly called into question by, I don't know what's going on. Did I ever know what was going on? If this can happen, if I can know the word that my friend has just made up in her mind like this and get it right every time, then everything mm-hmm. I've ever thought is wrong. So there's anxiety there, mm-hmm. right? There's a historical problem with the mind. And part of what Alan was saying was <clears throat> that problem is much less concrete if you're raised in a community where this kind of thought and speculation and seeking and model making is common. Mm-hmm. That's true. It's much less severe, the anxiety, excuse me, the anxiety in that case. But I can't help but bring in another vector. So look, um, Marla told me a story about relating with some of her friends and they were essentially trying to figure out whether it was okay to relate with her or not. And what they were trying to determine in simple terms a, is- A part of is, me. Yes, happy okay. to relate with a part of me, but this new I got part, you. yeah. Yeah. So they were trying essentially to figure out, is Marla crazy? Is this part of Marla crazy? Right, is right. this part of Marla crazy? Because they knew so I why, wasn't fundamentally, right. Sure, yeah. So why are we concerned about insanity? And surely we should be. Insanity is contagious. Most things with humans, we, we share them together. It's part of why a community together makes an entirely different context than one or two people on their own. But I've spent 20 years 
bonding very deeply with unusually minded people. Mm-hmm. These are people who are psychotic, schizophrenic, anorexic, bulimic, cutters. Um, and of course, these are just tags, but they're not merely tags. So to a schizophrenic, and each one is unique and each moment of their experience is unique, we'll grant that. <clears throat> the world seems to be fundamentally psychic. And yet the derivations that their minds produce are not only incoherent and often agonizing and terrifying, they are profoundly trenchant. They collapse the whole mind into this storm of synchromysticism, right? Mm-hmm. Now, often, yes, it's true, there's some weird seed of knowledge or insight inside the insanity, mm-hmm. but the person in the grip of a mind like this, they don't have a mind anymore. They have a, pro- a series of processes that have completely overwhelmed their consciousness. This is a, a, a real danger we should pay attention to when we're talking about, for example, trying to get people to, or not get people to, trying to aid people who want to explore, helping them to feel safe. Yes. <clears throat> so there's some real danger here. This terrain. Yes, but there's real danger. This terrain is um, coexistent with insanity. These two, the domain of of like, it is a kind of insanity. Yes, it is a kind of insanity. And even in my own experience, there were grave dangers for me. Um, And I, like you, didn't have a community, didn't have, I had only the teacher who was, you know, in my mind. But you're thinking psychism is is a form of insanity? I I disagree. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Okay, I'm saying... um, Let's get a cohort of 10,000 people together, all right? And we'll start teaching them how to be psychic. Some of those people are going to go batshit insane. Some of those people were insane before we even started. The structure of their minds was already distorted in such a way that they're not likely to um, shift from that incoherence into something intelligent and sensitive and reliable. Reliability. What I'm really, that word. Yes, reliability. Over time. Yes. Dependable over time. Over time. Testable. Repeatable. Um, Which what I'm, also what I'm might getting I just add, if you don't mind, that um, this is also a problem that makes people anxious who are having psychic experiences, is that a psychic experience may be different every single time. Yes. So there isn't necessarily, well, ever really. um, That's why it's not science, right? Because it is different every time. Mm -hmm. But this creates anxiety for people because they want what Darren is saying, verifiable, repeatable. But so I really want to hear, I want to hear from Comfort and structure is letting people um, letting them know that their expectations about being spiritual or psychic are what is causing the anxiety. 
and the feel or the feelings of frustration or both or something in between. But what about the psychics who aren't? Who aren't what? Psychic. What about the people who claim? What about all the people who think they're having a non-ordinary spiritual experience? And of course, just existing, at, let's agree that existing at all is that kind of experience. So everyone's having it. Okay. We'll agree to that provisionally. But what about all those people, the millions of them right this moment, who absolutely believe they're having a psychic non-ordinary experience? But even those of us who have had reliable psychic non-ordinary experiences would look at their minds and just see a storm of incoherent nonsense. Not only that, their supposed psychism never, almost never predicts anything that actually works out to be true. What about that whole cohort? What about the people who are inclined to be very vulnerable um, psychologically and mentally in such a way that the, the idea of psychism is dangerous to their mind. What about those people? But you we know, have to take this into consideration. Go ahead, Alan. That's different from what Mahler does. Marla is- We agree. Thought, but she's, but there's, that's a small percentage that scares people away from the part of their mind that actually is psychic. I think if you, whatever you want to call it, we're all, have access to non-local reality, whatever that means in terms of physics. Sure. Yes. And the, the part you're talking about is the part that may be chemically imbalanced or traumatized or, or whatever. But Marla, this is a big problem with um, with psychics, uh, and I I feel bad saying this, and it's certainly not everyone, but um, there are psychics who are excellent at what they do except that they don't question um, whether or not they're bringing in their own experiences now we can never be 100 percent pure right but right um, that's, that's, that's where psychics go wrong when they start to say when they start to interpret this this is what i teach in remote viewing i say don't label it just describe yes. it without and, be, and then you're more right brain as soon as you say Oh, this is this, and this is the, then you're totally wrong. And it's so tempting. But the, oh, let's... Friend, the best psychics are the ones that say, I don't know why I'm getting this, but this is what I'm seeing. And you know that, right? Brilliant. Yeah. Yes, my own experience matches that. And yeah. by the way, this goes back to Korzybski. He wants us to realize that when we use the word is, mm. that's the signal of the problem of collapsing identity all the universal aspects into an excerption and then believing the excerption is true. Oh my God, That's, I'm writing this down right please, now. Please, please. This is what happened to me with the insect last night. I first collapsed from what the fuck is going on to, okay, it's an insect, you're not going to die. You know, right? And by the way, not knowing for the left hemisphere, that's death. It identifies that with death. Right? So it wants to never die. That means it wants to know what everything is. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I what? Love this. It wants to know what it is. See the power of those two words, those two little words. Um, that's the sign of collapsing identity. Now that can be done intelligently if the two faculties are in harmony. We might call it the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, even though that's a mistake. 
Um, when the two faculties are in harmony and doing their best jobs, their best roles, then we get intelligence of a form that humans almost never experience. And it's neither non-ordinary nor ordinary. It's transcendental. Mm. And that's accessible to all of us. And there. Hmm. That's such a powerful statement that that caps off. No, no, but that doesn't say anything. Just calling it transcendental is the same problem with the territory and the map. You can't call it that and have it mean anything, Darren. I mm. mean, uh, so, it, so you're, you're making the same move that you made with all theories are false. I know, but that's I'm a theory. Not, but only because I'm not understanding what the word transcendental means. Maybe uh, more. Some people are more sophisticated and understand. Okay, well, use the word non-local reality. That I know. Use that I phrase. Mean. That that. Okay. That, that I understand because you know. I'm saying something very similar, but I'm okay. saying something like what I mean by transcendental is probably like what we think when we think about metaphysics um, and incapable of being properly encapsulated in models and concepts and what's and is's beyond representational cognition. That is a word you could use, right? Is beyond. Yes. Unrepresented. That may be a better, a better uh, word, just uh, beyond. But can you actually cognize something that's not representational? Maybe abstractly, you're saying. Is that what you're saying? More? You can physically feel things that aren't representational, though yeah. physicists would argue. Yeah, physicists would argue that's that's because you have senses and organs and so on. You could feel um, things without, so, like music. Music, you sense it's not a rep, it's, but it's sound. I guess music is a form of that, right? It doesn't mean anything. There's, There's no always going to be some kind of interpreter that will say, that will do translation from experience into cognition. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a translating faculty. And so if we acknowledge that there's experience that the translating faculty is making derivations or excerptions of, if we acknowledge that, then we see there is a beyond. And that's what I mean by the transcendental. Mm, the transcendental, beyond the, the, the appearance of things, the trans, the trans. I understand what you're both saying, because transcendental sounds like it could be something. <laughs> Yeah, it, which is I mean, already a problem, right? Like, yeah, yeah I mean, once we have a like, tag, yeah. 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 So I'm in my mind, I'm already creating what that looks like, feels like, whatever. Yeah. Yes, yes. We're making derivations and excerptions. Well, maybe you up <laughs> a new word then that no one has heard before to call it something abstract. Well, the Advaita Vedantists are pretty good. They use the word awareness. Um, but what they mean by that is pretty complicated. They mean like the mind of God. You know, it's a really good book that talks about some of this is Carlos Castaneda's The Power of Silence. He talks about thinking without words and, 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 and pure abstraction and the somersault into unknowing and uh, all that. Yeah, I'm familiar with his work. In fact, you and I came together yes. around similar work yes yes yeah do you know that i first encountered you yeah darren and alan how long have you known each other 
Oh, well, through through um, Henrietta a couple of years, but it, did you encounter me before Henrietta? Did, did we talk? Oh, because you saw so, me. Oh, right. I had a non-ordinary experience, a very important and profound one for me, um, based on your interview with uh, a Nagual man, I think, who wasn't from Castaneda's lineage. Oh, Sergio um, Magana, was that? Yes, that's him. Yeah, oh. I think so. I watched part of your interview with him. And then within a few days, the thing that he was talking about happened to me. Wow. I became aware in my dreaming. I tried to turn around and look at myself in the dream. Yeah. Then I looked at my hands. Then I started flying. And then all kinds of other things happened. But yeah, I had this very powerful experience with you. And then it was, as we might say, synchronistic. That a couple few weeks after that, I met you with Henrietta. Yes, that's interesting. So you did something that directly contributed to a very important non-ordinary experience in my life. Something I'd been trying to do for 20 years and had no, no success with. Well, I'm oh. glad I could help. We're all here to help. That is so worth acknowledging, truly. Thanks. There's just one person. Think of all the people that you've touched in so many ways. All of us, though. You know, I mean, yes, thank you. Yes. Yes, we've all, we're doing that. Well, somehow it's like we have a mission, isn't it? Yes, we do have a mission, whatever that means, whatever that, we don't want to define it, but it is. Yes, we agree. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a shared mission. It is. There's someone, I don't know why this came to me, but I forgot someone quoted someone that said, whatever is, is, is what I want. There's three is's there. Whatever is, is, is what I want. Wow, Korzybski would roll over in his grave from the language. <laughs> whatever. Yeah, that I sounds like a surrender. Got... Yeah. Yeah, well means. So I would love if yeah. you both would be interested, and I'm guessing that Henrietta would. Um, I have uh, topics for three shows. Oh. One is, and based on our show tonight, one is insanity and spirituality. Wouldn't that be interesting? I think that would be really important to explore, yes. And the other would be... Um, um non-ordinary experience i think that could be so good to just talk about what that is and then a third show could be like we do so many of us sense this uh this mission that we're on i think that yes. would be really interesting to discuss aspects of that i like those topics a lot yeah okay. Alan, what do you think yeah i love that too it's stuff i think about all the time not so much about insanity because i've I've seen really crazy people within the spiritual community mm -hmm. use spirituality to not, I wouldn't say excuse their insanity, but to reference spirituality as part of their insanity. And they were truly insane people. But, you know, there's, I mean, in the sense that they were not functional. I mean, you have to have a foot in both worlds if you're going to be in the spiritual but you know you have to maintain 
Who are you going to talk about this with? What are you going to say? Not everyone's ready to hear this. And the people I knew that were I call kind of crazy didn't have those boundaries and would just blurt out things and, and not have a reference point for the self in understanding the relationship to other. Maybe that's... Yeah. Oh, there's something really well, important there. Maybe but, what we But Darren do. has something really important there to say. Do you mind? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I want to contrast yeah. the bizarre and storm-like um, uh, experience of dissociation yeah. with non-ordinary intelligence. I want to contrast those two. Oh, I yes. like that. I like that. Dissociation can pretend to be psychic, and the ego is really charged up. If it can be psychic, it has now validation, right? So there's all kinds of psychology here that we can explore in the future. But I just want to notice that one thing. Dissociation isn't psychism. Dissociation is largely pathological. Yes. And by the way, science is the most dissociated way of knowing we have. So it's intentionally it's dissociated. So you're right? saying science is pathological. Is that what you're saying? If they no. <laughs> we want to be really care. I want to be really careful. Right. Science is a powerful and useful way of knowing, but it's also the way of knowing that could end life on Earth. Right. Right. Religion is not likely to end life on Earth. Technology can. Well, religion up against another religion has been the source of yes. wars. So religion. Can of course. And we know, you know, there's all kinds of insanity inside organized religion. Well, definitely. So spirituality and insanity, there is there's some ground here to explore that's useful, but I mainly want to no. just. I could come up with a different name. I think that what I'm really saying is that when people start to have these non-ordinary experiences, um, it can feel uh, whatever. It can feel a million things. And one of the things it can feel is like I'm not sane because I don't have reference points for this because I don't because I haven't been exposed to it. So really, I mean more that than literal insanity. But this is. Not for Alan, because Alan is special, and I do believe you're a very special human being, Alan, and I've never met anyone like you. Why you're extraordinary, but, um, but- We agree about that. Well, I don't know what's special. I've just been myself, you know, so maybe- <laughs> yeah. well, that's Yes, but to special. us, you are very special. Well, yeah. <laughs> and that's special too, somebody who's able to be themselves. The best, I, yes. the most- the best I've been know how to do. But anyway, what are you saying, Marla? What are you saying? I forgot what I was saying. Oh, come on. You were building up to a point. You were saying. Well, what I, no, what I'm saying is because I'm all about reducing anxiety for these kinds of experiences is I think one thing we could explore is how it might feel like you're perhaps not sane because you don't have a reference point for these. And because they are never repeatable in the same way. And so, I mean, that's a question I ask myself a lot, which I think we should ask, you know, okay, I'm having mystical experiences all the time and how am I functioning in the world? Well, you function I just, very well in the world. <clears throat> well, hopefully, but- So <laughs> but I wanna say something- asking, I'm not saying that I don't function well, but I think it's worth asking. What, what do it you is important say? to ask. Yeah. I just want to say about my, my own experience, which was really quite a stormy thing and lasted for a long time, about nine months in the, in the main phase. In any case, during that experience, 
my mind was walking a tightrope between reliable, non-ordinary sensing knowledge and intelligence and actual insanity, right? On, on one mean, sort of side of the thing, um, like schizophrenia, extreme paranoia, megalomania, oh. um, things we have labels for in psychology. My pattern matching abilities were so sharp that I was in danger of having my mind collapse into synchromysticism. And that's essentially one way of thinking about what happens to many schizophrenics. So for but example, my, my friend, say again. But it did not happen to uh, It partly ultimately. happened. I didn't evade all the repercussions. I evaded maybe the major ones, and I was lucky to do that. But so for example, my friend William, who's schizophrenic, and he doesn't mind me talking about him. Um, when he sees license plates, every letter in that license plate is a demon. And the combination of those specific demons tells him a hateful accusatory message toward him and toward all of humanity and toward all of reality. So in, in William's consciousness, everything is a sign. You see the problem here? That is a problem, but it, yeah. But that's all, and, and that, that language of signs has been captured by, a, by specific processes in his mind that literally just produce incoherent conflict his but mind's you know, attacking itself i think that this is a problem in our culture of spirituality that needs to really be addressed you know sometimes an accident is just an accident right but i find that with most people who are spiritual they want everything to have meaning they want well um everything is a sign and i repeat my favorite joke what freud said freud said sometimes a cigar is just a good smoke so there you go <laughs> what a dick thing to say freud <laughs> <laughs> that's my joke about freud <laughs> no, yeah sometimes think, a cigar is just a good cigar I think that's a psychosis of spirituality you got there marla that you know you know it, 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 and he this again causes a lot of anxiety because people are i mean i know this from my clients like you know my god i had a fender bender and you know i'm thinking that this means that i you know on and on and on i could give examples um so yeah i mean on another level the universe is talking to us all the time or is it not marla well i think that this is an excellent question I have come to the place where I think sometimes we're just living life. And, mm -hmm. and I'm one who's having mystical experiences all the time. Mm. Well, we're but sometimes we're just, you know, walking a trail. Right. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think it's worth actually at least three things are true. <laughs> at least three. Okay. okay. And this is a model. So this is false. The first is life is exactly what it is without all the things we paint on top. We are simply walking the trail. The second is we are thinking and considering and forming models and maps. This is natural to us humans. I agree. And the third thing is an explosion of the nature of origin and the divine expressing itself. 
And maybe we can contact that third thing somehow. All, but so all these things are always, they're all happening. Sorry, yeah. go ahead, please. I agree. No, I agree. That's a great way to frame it all, Marla, in those three kind of parts. Notice can the difference between, again? say again. Can we discuss this again? So now we have Absolutely. four shows. <laughs> Wait, I wanted to hear what you were going to say. Notice the difference between what, Darren? When we have an exception that is monomodal, that is a tree. It's just us walking down the trail or the cigar is a penis, right? When we have a monomodal exception or if we have a multimodal exception, at least three things are happening and some things we don't know are happening. Our minds are much better off in the three plus domain than they will ever be in a monomodal domain of identity and thinking. But we are trained to think monomodally. Well, otherwise you're a fundamentalist. That's the problem with fundamentalists. They interpret things literally. The Bible is this, and you know, that's, that's fundamentalism, I would call it. Then maybe that's the fifth topic. <laughs> fundamentalism. Oh my God, I love us. <laughs> you know, Me I'm, too. Really, I'm thrilled to be with uh, two exceptional minds today. Really thrilled. And I'm just going to um, tell you that Henrietta couldn't join us because there are storms in New York or wherever she is. And her, Mexico, um, where is she? Mexico. Mexico. She's oh, she's in Mexico. Oh, I didn't know she was back there. Okay. So anyway, they were having storms and she had no power or internet or something. But anyway, so next week, Marla, what do you want to do? Where should we focus? Oh, you know, I don't know which of those four. I have two. Well, go ahead. Non-ordinary experience mm -hmm. or the mission. Why do we? I like the mission. One. What is it? Et cetera, et cetera. I like the mission. Does everybody feel like they have a mission? Are we special? That we feel we have a special mission. I think everyone has a mission, but now that everyone knows what that mission is, and the mission can change too, right? So yeah. Anyway, let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay, is that our next show? Oh my God, how exciting! <laughs> I hope that um, I hope that Henrietta will um, agree. Oh, uh, she will. She, she will. will. Okay. I just want to say that that in my current situation, Mondays are terrible. Oh. Um, I don't know what to do with myself and stuff. Is and and this talk today. No, no, I'm trying to say something different. This talk today has made you've turned Mondays into something beautiful to look forward to. Oh, okay. Yeah, Great. This is really, this is the good stuff. Yeah. This right. is the good juicy stuff, isn't it? I think I'm going to play this on my podcast, this dialogue. So um, I'll let you guys know. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see a link. That'd be great. All right. So next Monday, then same time, six thirty Eastern, and yeah, and we can, you know, we can determine what to do based on how we feel on Monday, mm -hmm. too. Yeah, we could we go have beyond. To have a plan. Mm -hmm. We could go. And we might just accidentally do that. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you, Darren. Hope things clear up in your reality. And mm, thank so you, Alan. Make it more. Thank you, Marla. Yeah. Thank you, Darren. You are so blessed. Much love to both of you. Much love. Much, and, and all the beings. <laughs>